Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Wednesday Conversation. I'm Bethany Gilbert and I'm here with Pastor Bob Thune and Pastor Dusty White of Quorum Deo Church and Pastor Chris Hemmelman of First City Church. Every Wednesday we sit down to talk about how the gospel of Jesus Christ connects to the questions and issues of everyday life. Today we're talking about the Christian family, chapters 3 and 4. It's Third Wednesday Theology. We're reading Herman Bovink. Welcome back, Bethany. Thanks. Good to have you back. Oh yeah, you were in doing I European in, I was in England. Vacation, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I was in England with my mom, visiting all of the Anglican churches you could possibly imagine. Felt like it was just an Anglican church tour. And old Roman sites. Too. And old Roman sites. And we you saw a lot, of, a lot yeah. of history. Yeah. It was very cool. Very fun. You've also been there multiple times. This was my second time being there. Okay. I haven't so. been there any times. Because the way you were Fresh talking go. about it was like, yeah, this time. <laughs> yeah, I'm like, oh, so every cool. other every cool. other Just week. the one other time. Just the one other time. Also, Dusty, you don't sound like, you don't look like your voice sounds. I did have somebody visit our church recently and they said... I thought you would look and sound different. And I think that person meant, I thought you would look better <laughs> and maybe sound better. I thought better. you'd be more handsome. <laughs> yeah, Were they more surprised by the beard or the man bun? I have a face for radio. That's, That's right. what they meant. <laughs> yeah, we like meeting listeners from the Wednesday conversation who are like, oh, your voice doesn't go with my mental picture of what I thought you would look like. Which has happened a lot lately. Hey, People, welcome. I got that People one time. Um, Kyle McClellan, yeah. his wife said, I thought you'd be taller and blonde. <laughs> like, okay. Yeah. I must I say I must sound six six and blonde. I guess you do. You're you're kind of Dutch. I wish you way. were blonde. I, I, you, I wish there was a time in high school I was blonde. <laughs> wow. Intentionally or frosted frosted tips. Frosted tips. Frosted tips. Yeah. Well, let's not relive the high school no, let's on not. the frosted tips. Hey listeners, we have been working our way through Herman Bovink's little book, The Christian Family. Um, I said last time we started this book uh, that one of the reasons we want to do it is just because he's writing outside of our cultural moment. And so it's interesting to read things about family and gender and sexuality that are just, you know, from 100 years ago, from someone who's not caught up in all the debates we're caught up in. Also, I mentioned that this is, he's doing a biblical theology. So he's sort of working from the beginning of history all the way through the redemptive storyline and, and bringing us to sort of eschatology and new creation. And so it has that kind of development. So we're in chapters three and four. Chapter three is titled The Family Among the Nations. And then chapter four, uh, The Family in Israel. And so you can see he's sort of working his way through the book of Genesis and uh, and working his way into the Old Testament. So we're going to just um, tap on a few of the themes that he draws out in these chapters, and then we'll just have some conversation about it. Um, we're inviting some listeners to, to read along if you want to. And if you're not reading along, hopefully you'll just find some of these themes that we draw out to be helpful in helping you think about um, the nature of the family and what Scripture says about it. What I like about Bavink, as Chris always reminds us, is he is orthodox yet modern. And so he's a, a modern thinker in the sense that he wants to engage what would a skeptical non-Christian person sort of intuitively think about this. And so in this chapter, this third chapter, The Family Among the Nations, Bavink spends a section um, talking about, hey, what does evolution say about the family? What are the sort of people who buy into the theory of evolution? What's their understanding of the family? And he sort of traces this um, this way of thinking that says, you know, um, in the earliest human history, no form of communal living really existed. Everybody was sort of, um, you know, very unstructured socially. We had sort of, people just sort of lived like, uh, it's <laughs> the way he says it is, um, since human beings descended from animals, 
Um, for centuries, they remained kind of half animal. And the way they lived together was like the animals. There was no marriage, no home. Um, every man belonged to every woman and every woman belonged to every man. It was completely free sexual relationships. He says, this is how the evolutionary uh, way of thinking used to talk about how human history developed. So there was, you know, it's kind of this wild horde of things early on. And then over time, human beings sort of identify into tribes. And then they develop this sense of kinship and blood relationship. And then they finally end at this place where they, they sort of organize themselves into families. And so he says, if you think about a traditional evolutionary way of thinking, that's how they think about how the family came to be, is it's sort of a, a later stage evolution in human history. Then he has this little section called the inaccuracy of this construction. And as he often does, he just sort of pokes a hole in that way of thinking um, by, by saying, actually, more recent thinkers who buy into the theory of evolution question this way of explaining family. And in fact, there are many who would say, actually, the data, even from an evolutionary perspective, doesn't indicate that sort of linear development. The way Bavink writes it is this, to identify peoples and situations simply in a predetermined order after one another, like exhibits in a museum, does violence to the reality and the pluriformity of life. So he says, um, actually, it's not as simple as just there's this linear development across time, even from an evolutionary perspective. Then what Bavink does is says, you know what? The destruction arising from sin is evident in whatever you want to say about the sexual practices of societies throughout history. So he sort of traces, you know, if you just look across societies in every part of the world, in every social and cultural structure, you find two things. You find the existence of families and an inclination toward that. And you also find all kinds of sexual sin and dishonoring of human beings. And he, uh, he lists this whole sort of litany of what kind of evils you can find all across the world in almost any society. He says you'll find both the worship and the denigration of women. You'll find both the seduction and the hatred of men. You'll find both idolizing and killing children. He goes through this whole sort of litany of all the various types of sexual evil and relational evil that you see. And he says all of these threaten the existence and undermine the well-being of the home. And when the evolutionists bring up these facts from the history of the human race, they simply expose this tragic reality, the tragic reality of sin. But they err, he writes, when they claim that these are the result and outworking of an animal-like situation in which people lived originally. By saying this, they do injustice to the animal world. For animals do not live as people often live with and among each other. In order to sin in such a terrible and refined manner, one must be a human being. I thought that was a great line. In order to sin in this kind of a refined way, only human beings are this refined. Stop being so creative. hard on animals. Is that? Yeah, he's basically saying like animals aren't as bad as you or as bad as us. So he, he basically then concludes this chapter by saying um, in every culture, in every place in the world, the one thing that's been maintained is the family. Whether it's weaker or stronger, we, we encounter among all peoples mores and laws and customs that regulate things like marriage and relationships between husband and wife and relationships between parents and children. So in every culture 
across the world, we see these, um, the family unit, and he says we also see the distinction between man and woman. In fact, this is a great line on page 25. Remember, he's writing 100 years ago. Nature itself teaches this distinction, and no science or philosophy is needed to acquaint oneself with this, which is good for us to remember in a moment where everybody is telling us there's no such thing as man or woman. Bavink wants to remind you, nope, nature itself teaches that distinction, and it's always known among all people groups. So what do we see in the family among the nations to conclude chapter 3? One, we see all kinds of sin and relational and sexual brokenness rampant across societies, but two, we see the stability and sort of the preservation of family across every society and culture. And Bavink just says that's exactly what the Bible would teach us to expect. We would expect that the reality of sin means brokenness is everywhere, but that the reality of natural law means everywhere in every society, people care about raising and passing on culture to their children and the the stability of the family. Bavink regularly targets evolution, whether it's in his systematic theologies or a book like this. And one of the things that I appreciate about his critique is even if the details uh, somewhat have shifted and, and maybe evolutionary theory on the family maybe has changed in some ways over the years, but the basic critique still stands, how the evolutionary framework is this linear progression and it somehow um, is meant to undermine sort of the, the natural state of the family, I think ultimately is what the evolutionary argument is like. This isn't how man originated. They sort of developed into this and how Bavink wants to undermine the, the linearness of it, but also to show that if you do dig back into sort of primitive man, quote unquote, you're going to see, no, actually the family was there. And this, yeah. this is actually uh, sort of the foundation of everything. So even if the details have changed, his, his core critique still stands. Agreed. What I also appreciate about Bovink is that he's so aware of sort of the cultural currents of his day, and he can speak intelligently to them. So he says, you know, in his day, there was a, a strain of thinking that in the evolutionary biology world that said, you know, most cultures were matriarchal if they were ancient, and then patriarchy was a later development. And he talks about that and says, that's what some people say. And then, but he also notes that like, right around the time he's writing, that theory had sort of been thrown into question and, and new biologists were saying, actually, I don't know if the evidence shows mm-hmm. that there's a lot of patriarchy in ancient cultures. And so he, in this chapter, sort of frames out both of those themes and is able to talk intelligently about some people say that matriarchy is sort of the most ancient form of the family. Some people say that patriarchy is the most ancient form. Actually, we see both across various cultures. And so it's just interesting to me that Bavink is always a good student of his own day and sort of of the arguments of his own day and always asking the question, how does the Bible speak to this? Mm-hmm. And along those same lines, he's he's also able to find aspects of truth. Like, so what he highlights with the evolutionary perspective is they highlight all these, what we would call broken ways of relating to one another, especially sexually. And they do a good job of highlighting the existence of those things in culture. And Bobbing's like, hey, they notice these things. They They pay attention to them. They describe the dynamic well. So we can, we can learn from it, but a proper critique would be to say, hey, the linearness isn't there. Rather, this existed alongside of what we would say, you know, the family and the preservation of the family. So again, loving the way Bavin can critique very strongly something, but also kind of pull out where there is nuggets of truth. Okay, so then chapter four, he, he's going to move forward. Remember, as a biblical thinker, when he talks about the family among the nations, he's thinking basically Genesis 3 through 11. So when you think about the scriptures, think Genesis 1 and 2, Garden of Eden, Genesis 3, Fall, 
Genesis 3 through 11 is sort of what we, most people would call the, pr- the primeval history, sort of like the earliest uh, record of human culture after the fall. And there's a lot there. And Bavik sort of draws his understanding of the family among the nations out of there, but then spends a lot of time talking about how evolutionary, th- how evolutionary theory would see the family among the nations. But now he wants to move to, okay, let's talk about the Old Testament. In Israel, among God's covenant people, what was the family like? What was marriage like? And a few things that it's just good that he straight up recognizes and that I think he, as a good Bible student and scholar, he notes these things and we should note these things. The first is he says the entire organization of the nation of Israel was along patriarchal lines. That's just a, that's just a plain fact of reading the text. He says the 12 tribes were divided into clans, the clans into families, the families into households. Each of these groups had its own head, representative, or prince, and all of these heads or princes together formed the members of the assembly. And so he acknowledges that Israel is built as a patriarchal society. As such, he says, the husband and father possessed extensive power. And again, this is one of the the modern feminist critiques of the Old Testament is it reads very patriarchally and it seems like men have a lot of power. And he's saying, yep, that's true. Now, what he wants to draw out though that I think is an important nuance is that that does not immediately lead to exploitation. He says one would be mistaken to conclude from this, this extensive power of the head of family, that his wife and children lived in a situation of slavery. Of course, men among Israel, just like men among other nations, occasionally abused their power, but such abuse occurred always and everywhere, including in our society, without the law being able to do much to change that. And then he has this great phrase, Sin always finds an escape route. I just think that's good pastoral wisdom. (laughs) He's just saying like, you know what? You can legislate, but sin's always going to find an escape route. But here's where he goes to to what you just said, Chris. What he he does here is then he critiques how people critique patriarchy. And here's how he says it. Nowadays, people frequently allege the conclusion that patriarchy is evil or that biblical, that the Old Testament way of doing things was inherently oppressive. But this view proceeds from the theory of evolution, which teaches that on its own nature is chaotic, disorderly, a battle of everyone against everyone else, and that in such a situation, order is created only through the legislation of the state. The man is viewed essentially as a wild animal that is tamed and turned into a man only by the state. The state becomes the great domesticator and nurturer of humanity, the source of all rights, the creator and shaper of society. But this perspective is pervasively false, for it fails to take into account the rational and moral nature of human beings, their reason and conscience, their heart and soul, in short, the creation and providence of God. Rather than concluding from the absence of laws that people live in a situation without rights, In many cases, we can with more warrant argue just the reverse and say the more laws we need, the more it becomes evident that rational and moral understanding, natural love and natural bonds are losing their influence and power. So he sort of just takes, he he turns the argument on its head and just says, people who would say that the existence of a patriarchal structure automatically means that structure was inherently oppressive are proceeding from an evolutionary viewpoint. Mm. And that doesn't take into account the reality that 
human beings are rational and moral. They have reason and conscience and heart and soul. And so that the existence of a structure itself does not automatically equal oppression. And I think that's an interesting um, way of framing it because he's, he's not pretending that the Old Testament is not patriarchal, but he's also saying that does not automatically equal women and children not having rights or that that structure being inherently oppressive, which is one of the things we hear commonly from, you know, sort of modern feminism. And I think it's important to um, to draw out what Bavink draws out here. This is a, I say, like, th- this is a pretty high view in some ways, a high view of natural law. Mm-hmm. And, exactly. and even and to some degree, human nature. And, and as a good reform guy, of course, he's going to say, you know, total depravity, but his point of, the need for more law shows that there has been a breakdown essentially in natural law. Yeah. And, and so I, I, that's what I was struck by this argument too. Of like, man, this is a, this is a high view of natural law. Cause a lot of us could argue, well, man's fallen. And so we need lots of laws. We need to, you know, create all these protections around, you know, whether it be patriarchy or some other structure. And he's, at least it seems like he's arguing not necessarily depending on how maybe a society has been formed and, and the nature of sort of the, um, kind of common grace virtue that exists within society that is possible to have to have less law there because sort of the natural bonds are there. Well, and I think it flows right out of what he said in, in chapter three of in every, in every society, no matter how pagan, you still see the existence of the family. So yeah. yeah, that's a natural argument too, to say if something is persistent across human societies and cultures as varied as they are, that speaks to something that human beings have an inherent value for an inherent longing for despite how their sin might complicate it. Now, I think it's important to say here too, that I, you know, we're in chapter four of the book. So I suspect Boving's not going to end up saying patriarchy is awesome. He's just acknowledging in the old Testament. Yep. It was a patriarchal structure. And let's, let's, let's read the Bible and acknowledge that that's true without automatically defaulting to something that is inherently oppressive. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important point. I also liked to kind of add to the point we've been making here. He writes on page 33, among Israel, the rights of the wife and the children, and actually those of the husband as well, were established in large part, not in the law, but in the moors. The which, mores. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Sorry, I said that wrong. I said that, I knew how to say that word and I say it, said it incorrectly. The mores. Yes. Sorry. Uh, and then goes on to describe sort of the, the human interaction within the family that didn't need to be spelled out in the law, but just is displayed in the cultural life of the family which is an incredible argument to make because again, when we're, we operate so much on the, on the lines of, Hey, this needs an explicit law to show there's this value or this protection where he wants to say, well, just look at the way the family interacted. And there's an incredible amount of freedom for daughters and for wives. And yeah, there's aspects where it was patriarchal, but if we, if we only look at it at the level of what is explicitly stated in the law, then we're going to miss actually the way life was lived out. I mean, you think of a Proverbs 31 woman. She doesn't sound like oppressed or a slave at all, like no. an incredible amount of autonomy. And that was the culture that was celebrated and valued. So I think he, in pointing this out, he's trying to press past just this very rigid view of enshrining value only in what's explicitly stated in a law. Yes which is important not just for this issue, for, for, but for a lot of our reading of the Bible, right? This is a pretty mm-hmm. short chapter, and I think as I thumb through the rest of the book, one where he's dropping the most scripture references <laughs> in the entire book. So he's not just you know waxing eloquently. He's got a ton of Genesis and Exodus 
Samuel all throughout this this whole chapter. Yeah, the wives like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, Hannah, Abigail hardly give the impression of having been slaves. They are free women who honored and loved who were honored and loved by their husbands. Yes. So the the story to your point, another way to say what you're saying is the narrative tells a story not just the legislation, yeah. not just the law. Yeah. The Bible's not just morals, but it's a story. And in what we read in the story, we see um, what's valued and honored. All right, so Bobbing wants to end this chapter with a discussion of polygamy. Chris, am I allowed to have more than one? I mean, does the Old Testament just sort of like smile on, oh, well, the patriarchs like had more than one wife? Only if you were rich and had a hard heart. Wow. Okay, that's interesting. Tell me more. So he does acknowledge, again, acknowledge that this existed, but he is careful to point out that uh, while polygamy was given allowance and because of the hardness of heart, it wasn't ever celebrated. It wasn't ever held out as something that was the the model or the thing to be pursued or to be championed, but rather, even though it was allowed, it also is shown to be the source of an incredible amount of pain and frustration and heartache. I think this is an important, I'm going to read a couple uh, sentences here from Bovink because it is important to read the Bible well here. Here's what he says. Marriage was of divine origin instituted by God, Genesis 1.27, in principle and in essence, monogamous and unbreakable, Genesis 2.18-24, a covenant established by God, Proverbs 2, Hosea 2, Ezekiel 16, Malachi 2. For that reason, it was supposed to be kept sacred. The law did indeed permit polygamy and divorce, but these occurred because of the hardness of heart conflicted with the essence of marriage, and were never the rule. Prophets and poets proceeded from the idea that marriage was a bond between one man and one woman. And in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the words from Genesis 2, they shall be translated, or they shall be one flesh, are translated as those two shall be one flesh. What I see Bavink doing here is the same thing we see Jesus doing in the in the question he's asked about divorce, where he says, from the beginning it wasn't so, right? Moses permitted this because of hardness of heart, but from the beginning it was not so. And I think as, as we taught uh, the Ten Commandments a few years ago, one of the helpful tools that I was given by one of the commentators on that was to understand the law as prescription for life in a fallen world, right? As a way of like restricting the worst excesses of human sin, rather than to see it as like, this is God telling people the best possible way to live. This is God actually reigning in some of the excesses of human sin. When you think about like, why would God prescribe um, a law for how to, how to go through a divorce in a way where you can adjudicate it fairly? Not because God favors divorce, but because in a fallen world, divorce is sadly going to happen. And God wants to ensure that the people involved in that situation have rights and are treated fairly. But that the essence of marriage we go back to Genesis 1 and 2, which is what Bavink is doing here and saying, yep, the law permits polygamy, but not because polygamy is God's intent, rather because of hardness of heart. And that's an interesting way of understanding how the law functions in Israel. It's The Bible is realistic. It's, it's written to people in actual world, as you said, fallen, broken world. And it doesn't shy away from some of those harsh realities, but rather gives a framework for how to live in those harsh realities. It's also interesting going back to chapter three, how he points out that uh, in the culture such as Babylon and Egypt and the Greeks and the Romans, even where law or custom permitted a man to, to take concubines, uh, monogamy was still the rule. 
Yeah. So even yeah. within uh, a culture of polygamy and maybe an ancient Near Eastern world where polygamy existed, it was the exception more than it was the rule. And so it wasn't something that was just everybody had multiple wives. This is the normal practice. This was the sort of what dominated culture. It actually was an exception. And he mentions, I think it's in chapter three, that still just one, one still held primary yes, yeah. relations. Yeah. There was oftentimes it was, you know, the first wife or someone. Well, you, know. you yeah, you see that with, uh, you know, how, how the Bible talks about Jacob's wives, Rachel and Leah versus the concubines bill on Zilpah, right? There's like a, there's clearly a difference between those relationships because of the primary marriage and then the ones after that. This is, I mean, it's interesting because I do, th- I do, I do get this question from people who read the Bible and are just like, Hey, this is weird. Like how yeah. come, how come you can have concubines? That's weird. You know, like it's just the Bible, the Bible makes you ask these questions. Yeah. Or, or the argument, if you're trying to say a biblical framework for sexuality and marriage and like, well, what about, yeah. you know, polygamy and that sort of undermines the one, one man, one woman marriage. It's like, that doesn't undermine anything. Actually, if you look at it, it actually emphasizes the importance of it rather than trying to minimize the importance of it. Yes. So what I like about Bavink is he's not pretending any of that isn't there. He's just saying, yep, read the Old Testament. Looks like it's uh, Israel's patriarchal. There's polygamy there. <laughs> just, he's just dealing with the reality of the text yeah. saying, yep, this is all there. And here's how understanding God's essence and design of marriage uh, helps us understand how all that is getting worked out and played out through history. So I enjoy writers who just deal with the actual text of the Bible instead of trying to sidestep. <laughs> yeah. And try to explain it away. It's yeah. like, no, here it is. Yeah. It's there. And it's funny cause I've been interacting with a guy who like is literally asking questions about polygamy, like from the Bible, like just, Hey, this looks like it's biblical. And you know, so these are like, these are live questions people have. These are the real things that come to the surface when you read the Bible. So glad that Bob Inc. is guiding us through them. And again, this is biblical theology. So he's taking us somewhere. Yes. If you're wondering, like, why is he just spending all this time talking about evolution and then about polygamy? That seems like a weird couple chapters. Yeah, he's taking us somewhere, right? So stay with us as we follow the trajectory and the arc of his of his argument, which is, of course, going to come to its fullness, I think, as we get to the New Testament and what marriage and family looks like in light of the cross and resurrection of Jesus. The goal of this podcast is to equip our own church for discipleship and mission. So if you're a Christian or a church leader in another context, we thank you for listening in. We pray that this conversation might be helpful to you as you minister in your context. We'd love to hear from listeners. So if you have thoughts, questions, or future podcast topics, send an email to podcast at cdomaha.com. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next Wednesday for another episode of the Wednesday Conversation.